Good afternoon, I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, rural refrigeration, quirky stars, and mind scripts. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Paul Raphael, who will talk about conserving the hippo population. Also, we'll find out how sponges are made. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Just chilling. It's good to chill. Definitely. I'm talking about refrigeration, of course. So basically you're using the Carnot cycle. Yeah, you know, pretty efficient. <laughs> <laughs> Changes in pressure and uh, volume always yeah. work well. In fact, this is the same concept that people have been using in refrigeration all these years. And it turns out you can actually create a very simple device for cooling food, uh, especially for places that have no electricity now. It's quite simple. Actually, you have this cylinder, a cylindrical device, about 10 centimeters diameter, 20 centimeters long, and there's two chambers, one steel and one aluminum. So what you do is you start with the steel, and which is filled with this coolant, and you heat it up. You can use it fire for that. Mm-hmm. So when it heats up, it expands and it goes into the aluminum section as a gas. Right. It's a one-way valve. So now what you do is you take the aluminum section and you put it in your vessel that contains all your food and stuff and you let it absorb the heat, right. let the gas absorb the heat. And as it does that, yeah. it goes back into the steel chamber. Right. And what this industrial engineer found out was that you can actually keep food in that chamber for about four degrees for 24 hours. That's long enough to hold over the leftover Chinese food. Of course. So this is very interesting, and he thinks you can provide a lot of unelectrified areas with refrigeration now for as little as 18 bucks per unit. Oh, really? Is he presuming that people would just like have little campfire stoves or something that would keep this refrigerator unit going? Or uh, I guess you need to have a source of heat. Right. But, I mean, in a lot of rural areas, if you have enough pieces of wood and mm-hmm. leftover scrap just to heat it up right. once a day. We'll have to carry one of those things out to camping sometime. Yes. This was interesting stuff, and it's actually, it was demonstrated at London's Royal College of Art recently. All right, I wonder if the ancient Mayas actually had a source of refrigeration. Wasn't there a god cooling, I guess? <laughs> yes, I guess that would be Kular, the, <laughs> the god of cooling. But how did the Mayans evolve their language? I don't know. Maybe they use the clicks and clacks. <laughs> well, they certainly use pictographs anyway. Okay. Hieroglyphics. But it was it's a big question whether or not the Maya civilization adopted their particular hieroglyphs from other civilizations, hmm. in particular the ones called the Zapotec and the Olmec. So it was, it was wondered whether or not they borrowed it or, in fact, they developed it by themselves. Mm-hmm. Because there had been no evidence of pictographs earlier than Zapotec or Olmec cultures, right. it was presumed that they borrowed it. Uh-huh. But a recent discovery has shown that, in fact, pictographs existed around the same time as these uh, other cultures as well. Oh, wow. Saying that the Maya also invented their own language separately. Wait, I thought the Chinese invented uh, pictographs. (laughs) And they migrated to North America somehow, right? On little bits of wood floating in the ocean, I think. (laughs) It's it's very fascinating. It was a recent discovery last year in a pyramid called Las Pintoras, Mm -hmm. which is near San Bartolo. And this was an expedition that was done by uh, William Santoro of the University of New Hampshire in Durham. Mm -hmm. 
And basically they found 10 hieroglyphs painted on a uh, thick black line, a white plaster, and there's this glyph that says A-J-A-W, which essentially means ruler or lord. Okay. So very common. Again, very fascinating thing, just suggests that the Mayans perhaps uh, had writing much earlier than anyone thought, and they certainly didn't borrow their language from other cultures. Wow, they're smart. (laughs) So fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Science. So, Charles, have you ever suffered from uh, episodic dystonic posturing? Currently, right now, yeah, I'm hunched over like uh, Quasimodo. Whoa, so you got these involuntary muscle contractions that force you into these weird positions, huh? <laughs> yeah, my posture's not really all that good. Hmm. So it turns out some parents were worried since these type of contractions were observed in infants, and some people were trying to understand what was the cause, and after a further study, a neurologist believed that these symptoms are actually normal muscle contractions that accompany masturbation. <laughs> In little kids, no less. Yes, apparently it's a very common activity, and they may or may not necessarily touch their genitalia, but little kids have these type of habits. I see. Well, you know, what you learn in childhood usually carries on into adulthood as well. Yes, and uh, among one of the interesting observations is that if kids have the regular type of contractions and you show them a cookie or a toy car, they'll usually stop and actually go for the cookie and toy car. <laughs> Uh, reminds me of nine and a half weeks. I think I went for the science instead. <laughs> well, it gets me to contract all the time. <laughs> I'm contracting right now. Push, man, push. <laughs> so this is all normal stuff, and parents out there who are worried that their kids may have a movement disorder may not have to be so worried about mm. these posturing. People want to know more. This was reported recently in Live Science, and work carried out by Jonathan Mink, the chief of child neurology at the University of Rochester. Okay, so do you like creamy or chunky? Creamy, smooth, and lots of airy bubbles in your <laughs> mouth, I guess. I mean, you might like neutron stars then. Mm, I had that for lunch yesterday. Uh, well, so it turns out that uh, neutron stars may in fact be composed of chunks of strange quarks. Strange? Uh, it's kind of interesting because this is actually a bit of a debate on to what the surface of a neutron star would look like. Uh-huh. So neutron stars, of course, are a very highly densely packed form of matter. Right. And it turns out that in these neutron stars, you have are the typical up and down quarks. Right. But you also have these so-called strange quarks. Uh-huh. And it was thought that all those quarks kind of balance each other out so that you'd have sort of a smooth surface over the top. Right. But it turns out that there might actually be an imbalance between the number of strange quarks and the number of up and down quarks. Oh, okay. And that leads to a charge imbalance, which causes this matter to clump into various little groups on the surface of the neutron star. So would a neutron star be somewhat negative or positive in its overall charge? <laughs> I guess what they're suggesting is that you'd find chunks of positively charged strange quarks uh-huh. in a sea of negative be charged electrons. Wow. But overall, of course, it'd be neutral, I guess. So it's kind of a fascinating issue, just if you're wondering what the surface of a neutron star was like. I'm sure it keeps you up at night. <laughs> oh, well, it keeps me hungry, actually. <laughs> fascinating work. It was research that was published by Sanjay Reddy and Andrew Steiner in the recent edition of the Physical Review Letters. PRL. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, we'll be joined by Mr. Paul Raphael, who will discuss conserving the hippo population. So stay tuned.
right, welcome back to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, when we think of hippos, it is often as large, lumbering, sometimes comical creatures. But these animals have a complex society and are fascinating in their vast behavioral repertoires. Yet, like so many creatures, their numbers are dwindling due to human activity. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss the situation is Mr. Paul Raphael. Mr. Raphael is a contributing writer for Smithsonian Magazine who has made a long career of going to the ends of the world to some of the most remote and dangerous places on the planet. His recent piece in the Smithsonian Magazine features a review of what's going on with the hippo population in Zimbabwe. Uh, Mr. Raphael, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. G'day. Is it, is it morning or evening or afternoon there? I've been talking from the other side of the world in Sydney. Well, it'll be the afternoon, I think, more or less. Okay. How's, I guess it's the morning over there? Yeah, it's, it's uh, summer, and about two days ago it was 110 degrees. So. Okay. It looks like you just got back from equally fascinating places in Zimbabwe, where I guess some issues going on with the hippo population there. I was talking yeah, about so I, I was um, with the hippos not only in Zimbabwe and Kenya, but also deep in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where they've virtually been wiped out. Mm. There are still hippos in Kenya and Zimbabwe, but as a result of the devastating civil war that occurred in the Democratic Republic of Congo up until about three years ago, the hippos are pretty much gone there. There is some hope for them, though, in the southern parts of there. Say that reserves the population got from about 29,000 in 1974 down to only 887 now. Well, that was in the Virungas, the mountain chain over where the uh, the mountain gorillas are, uh, uh-huh. and that was just that one area that was one of its their strongholds. But uh, I went to the Democratic uh, Republic of the Congo to do a story, which will come out probably about May in Smithsonian about the bonobos, the pygmy chimps, and to get to where they are, a very, very remote part of Africa. We had to go something like 660 miles deep into the country by river. We used a pirogue or or a canoe with uh, outboard motors, and all the way along there in this massive river, a tributary of the Congo called the Miranga, all the way along in perfect hippo habitat, and where the elders and the villagers that I checked along the way told me that there were plenty of hippos before, so there would have been thousands upon thousands i didn't see one hippo there's not one hippo left on that stretch of 660 miles of uh, inland uh, fresh water where there would have been many many thousands so that's how desperate it's got in the congo they've pra- practically been wiped out mostly by humans many of them soldiers shooting them for uh, for eating for what's called bushmeat oh man I mean, part of the problem also is they pretty much reside in fresh waters, right? That's a big source of the conflict as well? Yes, because fresh waters are fought over because they're used for people for drinking, for fishing, and so on. And so when you have a civil war, you're going to have soldiers where the fresh water is. And of course, uh, Congo is landlocked anyway, so all the waterways are fresh water. And where you have soldiers and where you have war and where you have a, a poor country... You have soldiers killing wild animals for food. And what better than one bullet uh, through the brain of a 6,000-pound creature? And you've got a lot of meat, haven't you? Yes, indeed. Right. So is the situation equally dire you know, throughout Africa, then? Well, pippos really are only in the lower part mm. of Africa now. They used to be right up in the Nile area and so on, but, but they've mostly been wiped out. Up. They're pretty much down in places like Uganda, Tanzania, Zambia... 
South Africa, and so on. They're down to about 120 to 140,000 hippos, whereas just 10 years ago, there were about 160, 180,000 hippos. And it's getting to the point where, you know, like with a lot of these um, wild animal populations, they can crash. They get to a point where the pressures on them are so strong from uh, human habitation, from hunting, from bushmeat, and so on, that they can crash very quickly. And so that's why the United Nations has just put out alert on the hippos that uh, they are in serious trouble. So uh, I understand, I guess, that there are a number of conservation areas where some of these hippos are protected. Yeah, in Kenya, they're pretty much protected. I went to several places in Kenya and saw that they were existing quite peacefully. But Kenya exists very much uh, for its foreign currency on tourism, and so there's a lot of protection in uh, Kenya. Mm. The world's biggest game reserve, Savo, which is broken up in Savo East and Savo West, has some pretty good hippo populations. In fact, the best place in the world to see uh, wild hippos, if any of your listeners are interested, is in a place called Savo West, where the waters are a spring fed from a volcano and they're crystal clear and you can see them straight through the water. Generally, you know, hippos are in very muddy water because of the immense amount of dung that they produce, if nothing else. But this place, there's a constant flow through of this spring water, and so the waters are crystal clear, Hmm. and you can see them very well. That's in Savo West. Uh, It's a pretty good place. Uh, You all spent time on the journey going into Zimbabwe as well. Yeah, that was pretty hairy because uh, they don't welcome foreign journalists in Zimbabwe, and you can actually go to jail if they find out that you're in the country and that you're a foreign journalist. And that's because Mr. Mugabe, the the monstrous and murderous president, Mm -hmm. uh, has literally brought the country to its economic knees through some mad and rash decisions one of which has impact on, on the hippo and other wildlife population. And so, yeah, it was pretty scary. But I went down to another wildlife game reserve. This is the biggest private game wildlife reserve in the world and in the southeast. And I went down there specifically because there's an English woman and her French husband who are attempting and have been attempting for 15 years to save one pod or one clan of hippos. It, mm. It's a quite uh, quixotic uh, effort, but... <laughs> But it's amazing to see it. Mugabe obviously hasn't been very helpful to these efforts to stop the dwindling hippo population. No, there's been a lot of impact because of the economy, mm. on the economy because of the, the collapse of tourism. I mean, people are not yeah. going to go into that country when they read the kind of headlines they do that go around the world of, of people being killed in their thousands in a genocide, the terrible operation clean out the rubbish which took place in march april last year which deprived 700,000 people of their homes because he didn't uh, they didn't vote for him the publicity is pretty bad so why go there when you can go to south africa or botswana or kenya so the economy has had a tremendous fall down the other reason is that mugabe expelled 3,000 of the 4,000 white farmers who were commercial farmers there from their farms and installed in many cases, his own cronies, relatives, friends, and supporters of his parties. These people have no idea of how to run these farms. Consequently, they've fallen into disrepair, and you've had what they called invaders. They're mostly war veterans or veterans of the guerrilla war against the whites uh, some 20 years ago have uh, come onto these areas, the farms and the game reserves, such as the one I was mentioning about, and they've just settled there and set up their clans with a whole lot of people and uh, farmed in areas that should never have been farmed like the game reserves. Mm. And because they, they don't really have that 
much access to money. And on the game reserves, uh, they're surrounded by animals, and there is a big market for bushmeat in all over Africa, and particular places like Zimbabwe. So they're going about uh, killing animals which should, by law, be protected, and amongst those are the hippos. Mm. And that's happening at this place that I went to, where an Englishwoman called Karen Paolulo and her husband, Jean Roger, a geologist, have just given up their, their professions and settled in this little valley, and they've taken over eight acres, and there's a pot of about 21 hippos there, and they've devoted their lives to protecting these hippos, because it's, there's no doubt that if they left, the war gorillas that have invaded that area with their clans would kill the hippos for meat. Well, why, why did they initially move down to that area? And, uh, because uh, Jean Roger is uh, a PhD mm. uh, in geology, and he went down there on a contract to look for gold. Mm. While he was looking for gold, which he didn't find any, Karen, his wife, the English woman, came across this clan of hippos in the river just below them, about 400 metres from their home. And during the six, eight months that uh, he was there looking for the gold, she became so attached to them and she realised that they were under such threat from the locals that they decided their mission in life from then on would be to stay in that place and to protect the hippos. Are they getting any assistance from outside or is it just them? They are getting assistance from outside. They have a hippo trust and people are able to sponsor individual hippos. Mm. Uh, for instance, my daughter is a sponsor of Blackface. She's the dominant female. She's a very tough girl <laughs> and really protects her calves and won't take any nonsense, even from the big male. There's always a dominant male and anything up to about 20, 25 females in, in a clan. So my daughter is in sponsoring her. And Karen has a website. I haven't got the address of it at the moment, but if anybody was interested, her name, you just put this into Google, Karen, K-A-R-E-N, Paolillo, P-A-O-L-I-L-L-O, and up will come her trust. And then they can go there, read more about her and Jean Roger, and if they want to adopt one of the hippos in the clan, then Karen has a system. But that doesn't mean they're doing well. They mm. live as, they're, they're, they're as poor as church mice and they live on the edge all the time. Mm. But they're so dedicated to these hippos that they're not going to give up. Karen mm. says, if I leave, they'll die, and, and so I'm not going anywhere. I mean, they've been threatened time and again by these war veterans. They're going to kill them. They've threatened to burn down their house. Uh, Jean Roger is actually, at this moment, under threat of a murder charge because the war veterans claim that uh, he killed a poacher about, mm. I'd say, about a little less than half a mile from the home. What had happened, it seems, uh, hippos are very aggressive. As you were saying, they're quite comical in the way they're portrayed, particularly in the West. They're, they're not portrayed <laughs> comically in Africa because the hippo kills more human beings every year in Africa than... The lion, elephant, buffalo, and leopard combined. So mm. Africans stay well enough to keep clear of them, especially when a female has a calf, because then they become yeah, right. very, very dangerous. Well, it seems that at that clan of hippos, Cheeky, one of the females, had a calf, and she had her deep in the reeds where the, uh, the hippos go every day to eat. You know, uh, every night, I'm sorry, they they sleep all day. Hippos sleep all day or doze in the water, and then they go out at night 
where they can walk up to eight miles at night feeding on something like, for the big males, a hundred pounds. So right by the river is this place which have, has a reeds and, and pretty good grass. So it seems that Cheeky was in there with her calf and this poacher came crawling through looking for whatever kind of um, bushmeat he was looking for and she killed him because all they found were scraps of clothing and blood smears and a drag trail down to the river uh, sharing the place with the hippos of these very big Nile crocodiles and what uh, Karen thinks is that the, the, the poacher went into that river reed bed stumbled into Cheeky, Cheeky killed him and then an opportunistic crocodile found the body and dragged it down mm. to the river mm. however the police are still investigating the war veterans claim that because Jean Roger killed one of their relatives, the next time they find him in the bush they're going to kill him mm. and I was there during this time so it, it's all pretty, pretty tight. One interesting thing is that the hippos produce a kind of pink film over their bodies. Mm -hmm. In the old days, they thought it was blood. And so the idea was that hippos sweated blood. Then there was a suggestion that it's a kind of sunblock mm. so that it wards off the sun because they spend some time each day out in the sun. But what it does seem most uh, important for is that hippo males, particularly when they fight over females, these are very, very severe battles and they get very, very terrible wounds. And so the suggestion now is that this pink stuff is antibiotic to heal the wounds yeah. pretty quickly. And Karen has noticed that when hippos are getting aggressive or it's time to fight again, they do produce this pink stuff all over their bodies. And she found after Cheeky had what she thinks killed that poacher, she found that Cheeky had the pink liquid all over, the pink excrescence all over, which does kind of support her feeling that the poacher was stumbled upon Cheeky and Cheeky got really upset and aggressive and killed him. It's all a fascinating story, but I guess I'm curious. So what is the prognosis really for hippos in sub-Saharan Africa? I mean, are they going to survive? Are they going to make it? Yeah, I've done a lot of stories on animals in sub-Saharan Africa, not only the hippos, and I think the hippos are pretty much in the boat of most of the animals there. The bushmeat trade is far more cataclysmic than you've probably read. Hmm. It really is wiping out the wild animals all over Africa. Uh, there's virtually no checks on it. What's happening is that probably in the next 50 years, the only places that you'll be able to see wild animals in Africa are going to be protected parks, hmm. like Savo, like the huge Sanga Sanga complex that I visited, uh, in the rainforest complex that I visited up in the Congo Basin, uh, the area they're hoping to put aside for the bonobos where I've been, other parks in southern Africa for the hippos where they'll be able to exist but they'll be guarded by men with AK-47s hmm. and that's pretty much the only hope as I see it because as we say there's only 120 to 140,000 of them left now and most of the, those can go very quickly hmm. to bushmeat so hmm. I'd say in the next maybe maybe 15, 20 years uh, you'll have to go to a game park protected by men with guns to be able to see hippos or lions or elephants or most any other wildlife in Africa. I know that sounds terrible. I know that sounds pessimistic. I know as a journalist I should try and instill <laughs> hope in everyone. You know, we're going to save the wild uh, life in Africa as long as you send your money to some NGO, but don't believe it. The, the wild animals in sub-Saharan Africa have had it. Simple as that. The only way they're going to exist is mm. in protected pockets within about 50 years, but nobody's telling the truth because the NGOs all um, uh, need money for their, for their activities, and if they say, well, they've all had it, they're not going to get money, are they? No, so they say, no. there's hope, there's hope, there's hope. Right, right. Yeah, sure, there's hope. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, just, right. I'm a realist. <laughs>
Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's a tragic tale, and I think it's just sort of the way of the world at the moment. It is the way of the world. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Raphael, I guess we are slightly out of time, but I do want to thank you for joining us today, especially all the way from Australia, and talking about the situation with the hippos in Africa. No, thank you for giving me the opportunity. For any of the listeners, uh, the Smithsonian has a, a website, and there's more information on the hippos on that website if you go to it. It's uh, pretty easy to find Smithsonian Magazine and Google. Uh, again, Mr. Raphael, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grogs. Thanks a lot, mate. And you were just listening to Mr. Paul Raphael discussing conserving the hippo population in Africa. You're listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, you can find out how sponges are made. So stay tuned. To the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, now we're joined by the governor himself to tell us the answer to last week's question of the week. Yeah, okay, then. It's the governor now with this week's question of the week. Well, I'm trying to clear up the state of California with the sponges. These sponges are made from polyurethane, but you can also get the ones that are made from the sea. Now get to work now. It's not a tumor. Hmm, and you're with this week's question of the week. Mysterious and beautiful it is, the Mandelbrot said. I see. Hmm. But what is it made of, and how does it work? Hmm, if you know or think you know, email us at groksathotmail.com. You won't win anything, but fractalize your life, it will become. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at groksathotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs>